Hello, and thank you again for joining us on another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's new podcast. Each episode, we'll hammer out the latest in tech law and policy by talking to friends and fellows of the Foundry. The Foundry is a collection of early to mid-career professionals paving the way at the intersections of law and technology. We're based all across the country, and indeed your very own hosts, all 2017 Foundry Fellows, are virtually recording this podcast from different coasts. I'm Pinal Shah, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm an attorney working on GovTech issues. My co-hosts today are Emery Roan, a recent law school grad and California bar passer as of two days ago, who is a fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry and Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, based in San Diego, and Joe Jerome, an attorney working on the privacy and data team at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Today's guest is Camille Stewart, inaugural Foundry Fellow, who is currently at Deloitte working on cyber and privacy issues. Today, we're going to delve into some of the work Camille has been up to lately. But before that, Camille, we want to know more about you. So thank you so much for being on with us today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So the question that I like to ask people when they come on our show is, what are you grinding for? So, so many things. In the tech policy space, I work on a number of national security related issues, um, cyber diplomacy, cybersecurity, privacy, international cyber diplomacy. Um, it, the breadth is pretty wide, but also inclusion. I'm really passionate about making room for people with non-traditional backgrounds in the tech space. So I also do a lot of work in that regard. I love it. That's, that's a huge passion of mine as well. So I'm excited whenever I meet people who are working in that space as well. Um, so Camille, you and I know each other from our work in the Obama administration for the Department of Homeland Security, where we were both political appointees. I was in R&D and tech policy, and Camille, you were in the cyber policy shop. Um, one of the things that I admire most about you is your hustle. And even though you're younger than me, I'm often inspired by all the things that you're up to. And to that end, you've had a really extensive career already. You're currently at Deloitte, as we mentioned, where you work on cybersecurity and privacy issues. I want to know, tell us a little bit about how did you get to where you are, a little bit about your journey. I know your, your father is a computer scientist, and how did that impact you and bring you to today? Yeah, I'm happy to share. So first of all, that was very sweet, and you inspire me as well. Um, oh. I know. All <laughs> <laughs> um, so, All right. So like you said, my dad is a computer scientist, but I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. I was the kid who made her parents sign contracts every time they made me a promise. So <laughs> we used to get paid for grades really? and I would, I would yeah, write wait, it out. Wait, can we, we, we need to rewind. Are you, are you serious? Can we, <laughs> can we post one of those on our show notes? <laughs> oh my gosh, you can. I have a picture of one. Um, what were their literally- terms? Were there, was there like interest involved if they did give you... <laughs> There was no interest because they had to pay me on time, but there were like even witness signatures. Oh my and goodness. All the terms were laid out. It was not a joke. I was very <laughs> serious. <laughs> but I also grew up in a house that was, you know, filled with the latest tech, right? So um, I kind of needed to find a way to kind of balance those two interests. And when I got to undergrad, I was exposed to intellectual property. And that was my first foray into finding a balance between the two. So I um, thought I was going to be an IP attorney and, and did that for a while, but quickly realized through my first job, my first legal job after law school at a cybersecurity company that, that my interests were broader than that. And there were ways that I could really get involved in tech um, in a more concrete way that would 
you know, fulfill some of my interests. So I went to a cybersecurity company called Cyvalence and I was in-house there for five years and I worked on intellectual property issues, but I also worked on internet governance issues, incident response. I co-managed our security operations center. I worked on threat intelligence issues. Um, so the breadth there was really wide and it was, it wet my appetite to work on cyber. And so I spent that five year really crafting a position that was of interest to me. They knew they wanted legal support, but didn't know how. And so I kind of got free reign to, to build the position of my dreams. And then wow. the presidential appointment came up and they were building this office called the Cyber Infrastructure Resilience Policy Office at DHS. And they were looking for people to help start that team. Um, and obviously you can't turn down our presidential appointment <laughs> from the man that you like look up to. So I was like, yes, I will do that. Uh, and it was a great experience. We worked on a number of different issues. I had a large international portfolio. So I managed our relationships with countries like Israel, Five Eyes, Mexico, et cetera. But I also worked on a number of cyber and tech related issues with some of our components, like the one Panal was at, um, S&T. And a big one was encryption. Another was uh, cyber export controls, healthcare cybersecurity. Our reach was pretty wide. And DHS is uniquely positioned to work on these issues. So it was a great vantage point, both because of its broad mission sets, but its unique mission related to cyber. Hmm. And so, so well, I was just going to follow up by saying that, so I only really know of you through your reputation and your public presence. Um, and I, I think I think you are just really fantastic at doing personal branding, which I think is really important. Um, and I guess I've, I'm just sort of curious how you were, have been able to sort of balance positions in government where you're working on really, um, I don't want to say top secret stuff, um, but then also sort of really being out there in the public space. Yeah, so that's been an interesting balance because you're right, it does limit what you can talk about, when you can talk about, and how you can talk about it. Um, so I focus on different things depending on the limitations of my my current job. Um, so while I was in the administration, I focused heavily on the inclusion piece of my passion set, right? So I didn't talk as much about content. I did where it was allowed, where I was able, where the issues were very much in the public sphere. But I focused a lot on making room for other people to enter into the space. Um, and I continue to, to make that balance, right? Because now with my current employer, we still work on national security issues. So I have to balance how I talk about these things um, on a given topic. So for our young professionals out there or our students out there that are interested in getting into this specific space, I know that your, your work in inclusion, you know, piques my interest in particular because, um, you know, especially, you know, your path of taking from someone that was sort of strictly interested in IP to suddenly dealing with national security issues. These are, you know, it's a, it's a big jump, I guess. How did you make that leap from, you know, IP focus to national security focus? Um, and sort of what was that process like? You know, I, it was never conscious. Um, I have a, a huge intellectual curiosity. And so as things become interesting to me or as they come on my plate in my in a work context, mm -hmm. I'm willing to do the research and the work to kind of get up to speed. Um, my entire career has been working with technologists. Um, so I find myself always kind of learning something new, something technical, and that excites me. So that's very interesting for me. So it was kind of easy to, to bridge the gap because I was willing to do the work to bridge the gap every time I was put into a new circumstance or a new situation. 
Camille, you are living the dream. So do you have um, do you have any recommendations for young students or listeners that want to follow in your steps? I know, I mean, I'm looking at your LinkedIn page here. We'll probably link to that somewhere on the blog post with this show. But I mean, I'm seeing one, two, five or six different internships while you were still in law school. Do you want to talk about the law school experience or any advice you have for students? I mean, do you, if, if students are supposed to follow in your steps, how on earth did you balance that? Yeah. So a piece of advice I got really early in law school was try a bunch of different things because you may come in thinking you know what you want to do, but find that something else piques your interest. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of left myself be open to trying a number of different things. And without knowing that that's what I was doing, it kind of shaped what came later. So I I got a privacy um, internship at the D.C. government. I got um, time to work on the Hill and I was a fellow there. I worked as a judicial intern, which let me know that I did not want to be a trial attorney. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has to learn that at some point, you know? Exactly. (laughs) So be open to the experiences that come to you and kind of let those help you shape what's next. And so I wouldn't turn anything away. If it sounds interesting, do it. You might walk away knowing that that is not where you need to be, but that's valuable information in and of itself. I think that is like the best advice you could give to someone who's, you know, you know, just starting off as a student or a recent law school grad or even early career is that and I often find myself telling the same thing to to, you know, students who are younger than me or just people who are, who are just fresh out into the the real working world is that exactly what you said is don't don't, you know, don't discount something because it's not exactly in your wheelhouse or, you know, or you didn't anticipate working on an issue like that. And I think it's I think that is some of the best advice, honestly, because you never know when that, you know, that summer internship or that six month project that you worked on could be beneficial down the road because you might be the only person who knows anything about that issue. Right. So I think it's it's just really awesome. And also just makes you a really well-rounded individual to have had all those, um, you know, various experiences. So I, I yeah, thank you for mentioning that because I think it's great advice. Intern yeah, and intern agree. often. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and focus on skill building, right? Like, like you said, you might not love every internship, But if you're focused on building the skills, when you get the opportunity to use those skills in a context that is interesting to you, you've already done that work. And isn't it such like an incredible feeling when you are using those skills? Like the first time you get to use a skill that you learned to do real work in a field that's interesting to you is just kind of a magical experience. Totally. And to that end, knowing exactly knowing what you don't want to do as well, being like, oh, that's not how I, how I, (laughs) that looking, you know, it's like, no, I definitely (laughs) wanted to be a trial attorney. I know that, you know? I mean, that might even be the most useful experience, you know? (laughs) Yes, it is. So today we're going to talk about, you know, an exciting topic that a lot of people are interested in, um, national security and data encryption. So encryption is such a heated topic. It's a great safety tool for consumers to conduct financial and other sensitive transactions online, but it's also arguably a great tool for criminals, even terrorists, to coordinate and communicate with each other. You were in the thick of it at DHS under the Obama administration. How would you best summarize the encryption debate? And, you know, where is this policy debate headed? So... The argument really isn't even about encryption. It's about access, right? Law enforcement wants to access information to do their job. Privacy advocates want to protect privacy. Technologists want to protect the integrity of technology. And this is a conversation that has been going on for decades. So it will continue and it will, you know, continue in a similar vein, right? These competing interests will not go away. It will just be 
how the legislature decides to handle it. That's really what it comes down to. And if they decide to handle it, right? This is a debate that pops up, it surges, and then it goes down um, because it is a hard issue to discuss. It is a hard issue to legislate around. And as technology evolves, you know, anything that's too prescriptive could limit innovation. So is, do you, do you, would you say the legislature is the biggest driving force or is it, um, is it also sort of personal, like consumers who want to, and companies and corporations who want to protect their information? So I would say the driving force of this being a debate is probably law enforcement, right? Right. Because law enforcement wants to access whatever the information is that's being locked under encryption. So they are the driver, which is why it surges when big tragedies um, or big acts of terrorism happen because mm-hmm. they need to get access to you know, a phone or, or whatever. Um, and so it, it elevates to the public conscious again. I think that you are hitting on exactly this issue. I wanted to bring up in this question, but you know, when I hear the question, it's it's always asked as, you know, what is the right balance between security and privacy? How do we find the right balance between security and privacy? But I think that a lot of people would probably push back on the framing of that question. It sort of implies that, you know, privacy and security are both diametrically opposed and are the singular con- concepts of this issue, um, which I think is not not the case. Uh, I guess my question, though, to you would be from the perspective of someone that's, you know, has served as senior policy advisor, how do you feel that the way security and privacy are framed in this debate? Is there a better way for us to be talking about this issue of access? So it's it's framed in sound bites right now, right? So each side has has picked statements that really incite an emotion or people can connect with, like going dark, like um, privacy, like your security, you know, words that really strike a chord with the listener, with the audience, especially the audience that's not really as up to speed on these issues. Um, So, you know, that's never the best way to frame an argument, Mm -hmm. especially one that has such far reaching consequences, right? Encryption will affect our lives in big ways. And like you said, it is not that they are diametrically opposed. It's about finding the right balance of of not just privacy and security, but a number of different things and understanding what access means for your daily life. And part of this is that we need a more educated public, right? Because society should dictate how we move forward on the issue of access. But society doesn't understand, by and large, the implications of encryption, the implications of making compromises for convenience or making compromises and how people access your information. And so until the point that we have an informed public that can cry out for what they want, can cry out for what the right balance, what the right coming together of these things is, we won't have a clear way forward. We won't have a less polarizing way forward. But it is important to highlight that Security and privacy are not on two ends of a spectrum where you either get all or nothing, right? Right. Security has a number of different facets to it and a number of different, you know, things that are implied. There are human rights implications. There are law enforcement implications. There are a number of different things that come into this argument. They're not as simple as security and privacy alone. My follow-up on that is how do we ensure that this is an ongoing conversation with all the stakeholders versus just a reactionary issue. Every time there seems to be, and, and this is beyond encryption, this is, you know, 
um, terror acts and, and, and other violent acts. And, you know, when the shoe bomber happened, now we all have to take off our shoes. Right. So it's like how now when the San Bernardino thing happened, that uh, blew up the whole, um, you know, question about encryption and Apple and, um, law enforcement. So how do we have an ongoing conversation versus just reactionary policies? So there are ongoing conversations, right? Just not in, well, I won't even say not in government, but not in the public sphere in the ways that uh, <laughs> we talk about them when a San Bernardino or when a Texas happened, right? There are these groups advocate for this on a daily basis and are talking about how access should work or shouldn't work and what we should be protecting on behalf of the consumer and on behalf of the American people. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right. This does need to be something that we are legislating around or developing policy around, not in the midst of a tragedy, not in the midst of something that's spinning up, because bad policy and bad law always come from bad facts and a bad right. circumstance, right? So if we had had some you know, new legislation or new policy after San Bernardino, it would have been based on those specific facts that would not be applicable beyond that. And maybe they would be, but not widely. It wouldn't have been thought through in a way that was forward looking. It would have been a reaction, as you stated. So, you know, encryption's hard because, like I said, this has been going on for decades and people punt it the moment it's no longer in the public sphere in terms of doing something tangible because it is such a hard issue, right? Everybody understands wanting to be able to have a conversation without it being viewed. Everybody also understands that when tragedy strikes, they want law enforcement to have the tools that they need to do their job. Um, But I don't know that it's just that simple, right? Law enforcement has always had hurdles to getting information. one of the the clearest, you know, examples or metaphors that I've heard is that, you know, in drug cases, people often flush the evidence down the toilet, sure, but we sure. haven't gotten rid of toilets, right? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> same thing with shredders for paper. Those. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, there are going to be positives and negatives to every new technology, everything that we're using. And so we just need to balance that in a way that's that's best for, for the country. You know, it's so, almost though like it's it, it would be as if we are criminalizing the spread of the knowledge of how to make toilets, though. That's what that's what gets me about the encryption, quote unquote, yeah. debate is for, for me. It's like, OK, no matter, you know, we can debate, you know, those issues. But I think it's missing the elephant in the room that is, you know, what exactly is imagined as a solution when policymakers are talking about, you know, doing something about encryption when we're talking about math, you know, open source code that's out there on the Internet. Now, how do you make a successful encryption regulation scheme? What what would that even look like? Yeah, I mean, there have been a number of things tossed around, everything from, you know, completely outlawing it, which is unrealistic, to, you know, some kind of key management system that, you know, allows for you know, there to be a number of different key holders that have their own encryption keys. And then finally, when you get all of those players to agree, then you come together and you get the key, the master key that can open. The, I mean, all of it is, it's really just a lot. And you're right. I mean, how do you, you can't stop it. And even if you create something like that in such a global society, people yeah. can just buy the technology elsewhere. Right. Can like, 
can I ask a pointed question? It seems to me, and uh, as someone who is a privacy advocate, I, I look at law enforcement and the government and their response to this, and I don't actually think it's terribly thoughtful. Um, you know, I thought your framing earlier that we really need to have people come to the table and have an honest understanding of what encryption is and what law enforcement access is, is, is useful. Um, but then, you know, I, I see things and one of the things I was going to ask you was just the notion right now from the Department of Justice that, that, uh, companies should be engaged in responsible encryption, which begs the question, what is irresponsible encryption? But beyond that, and you, you mentioned this very briefly up top, was the notion of the, the going dark problem. Uh -huh. um, you know, I was hoping you could maybe explain a little bit about, you know, if the goal is to try and inform people what that is and not just what the propaganda. The going dark. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if it's propaganda, then, you know, whether that just suggests that law enforcement's being a little bit disingenuous. So, so <laughs> it's not a loaded so question at all. <laughs> I know, right? So, it is, so there are a lot of buzzwords being thrown around about, um, about encryption. So the one thing that was actually probably the, the best viewpoint of this issue is being at the Department of Homeland Security because there are so many discrete mission spaces within one organization. So I sat at the policy office watching law enforcement advocate for one thing, watching our privacy office advocate for another, and then watching organizations like MPPD advocate you know, for another, um, or at least from another perspective. Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest reasons that the government is unclear about this, in my opinion, is that there are competing missions that they're they're trying to speak for, right? And so they, until the point where they decide which mission space is quote unquote going to win or is prioritized or internally finds a way to 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 strike a balance, strike an accord on access, the the message will continue to be disjointed because there are so many discrete mission spaces. That's why the deputy AG can say that because for him, his priority, his mission is to get access for his people so that they can do their jobs. Right. And yeah. responsible encryption, irresponsible encryption, that's another buzzword, right? It is, you know, not advantageous encryption for them, for them to not have access. <laughs> <laughs> irresponsible encryption is, which is a thing, is when you leave the encryption key in the firmware of a device that you put out so people can, you know, hack it easily. Like yeah. that is oh. encryption. And that is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is just the mere fact of access and these companies not being willing, which let's be clear, traditionally they have been very helpful to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to draw lines before it's a free-for-all, right? Um, so yeah, buzzwords. So yeah, it sounds like what you're saying is that like everyone's got their own agenda, really, which kind of drives home my point even more is that like we need to, and your point is that we need to have everyone at the table have a really honest understanding of what we're trying to do. Because it sounds like everybody's like, no, this is what my job and this is what I need to get. And, every, and then there's the pushback. Well, no, we, this is our company and we need to protect our consumers, you know, information. So it's, it's just really, um, yeah, you can cut me off. <laughs> uh, I don't I mean, know. No, so yeah, but you're right. the The debate needs to happen when we're not in the thick of an issue. But the problem is, in today's society, we're not never we're never yeah, not in I mean, the thick of an issue. Right? That that and, seems like yeah, a, a fictional reality where exactly. somehow there's not a, an issue of the hour uh, occupying exactly. everyone's frontal lobes. Which is why so, I think we'll continue to be you know going around in a circle on this issue because people kind of don't really want to touch it in any real meaningful way. Well, I mean, so, we already did. You know, like the, the crypto wars were already hashed out literally decades ago, you know, when, exactly. 
Well, and but yet, our at least last in the last uh, presidential campaign, both Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton certainly was basically calling for Silicon Valley to what's the pejorative phrase, uh, nerd harder. Um, <laughs> the, the current, I love the current, the current president um, certainly thinks you know that companies should be helping out more, and it's unacceptable to be compromising security. Um, you know, it, it's my take that that Congress, at least certain members of Congress, have become more informed about the importance of secure of uh encryption rather on, on both sides of the aisle so camille i guess i'm just curious who who do you think ultimately has to make a call here is this going to be is this going to be various members of the trump administration calling for stuff in perpetuity or is sometime is congress eventually going to have to declare things one way or the other yeah, Congress is eventually going to have to declare things because most of the most most of the viable options in terms of moving forward on encryption that do strike some kind of balance that aren't, you know, let's do away with encryption will require a mandate from the legislature that will call for companies to give access to their information, right? To provide some kind of government key or something like that. And so there will come a point where Congress has to do something. But quite frankly, I think it will keep continue to go round and round in circles. Because as you said, the Trump administration is calling for access so they can solve these cases. But at the same time, there's a lot of speculation about them using and enjoying encrypted messaging apps um, to carry forward their business, which is, you know, completely contradictory to what they're saying otherwise. And so I think that's, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. I might say it's a bit <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it's also the epitome of the argument, right? Like when, when you look at it from one lens, you completely agree. Of course, law enforcement should be able to, you know, um, get access to this information because that person is a terrorist and they must mm-hmm. have done something wrong. And there's information on there that we need. But then when it's like, Oh, well, okay, but let me take a look at what's on your phone. You're like, wait a minute. Right. What about my right. So it's that overreach that we're all worried about. Exactly. But people, most people on a day-to-day basis put those in two different boxes, Mm -hmm. right? Their personal privacy, because obviously they're not a criminal, Mm -hmm. is not the same as that of a terrorist. And what they're not realizing is it's all one and the same. And that might not change how you decide or what you decide as a priority, but it might, right? Or it might just shift the line on the spectrum. So that's what people need to realize is that 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 reach into your phone, into your information is the very same as the reach into that of a terrorist. And so the line is never going to be clear, but we need to be able to articulate what and why and how we prioritize those things. Awesome. Yeah. So I think that hits all the major points that we're going to be able to have time for today. Obviously, this is an issue that is evolving. And as we discussed, you know, it's probably going to continue for a few years. So maybe we'll have you on again to talk about the next iterations of the encryption debate. Before we let you leave today, we would be remiss not to bring up some of the other awesome stuff that you're doing, Camille. I know that uh, we don't have time today to discuss your recent writing on net neutrality, but you've been writing about that. And then, of course, there is the podcast you've been working on with another internet, uh, internet law and policy foundry member uh hustle over entitlement do you want to tell us a little bit about that podcast and what you guys are doing over there yes i'm so excited about it hustle over entitlement tells the stories of people taking risks and trailblazing in their careers um so many of us are not bound by the traditional lanes of their careers or are being forced 
out of the traditional career paths, right? And we've taken risks and we've ventured out into new territories or we've combined a number of different passions to create something that is uniquely ours. So we're telling those stories. We're really excited about it. Myself and Gabriella Ziccarelli, who, like you said, is another uh, inaugural Foundry Fellow, um, have come together to really to put these stories out there. I'm really excited. We're in the midst of season one. Please join us and catch up. And season two will come out in the spring. I've had the opportunity to listen to a couple of the episodes and I have to say it's really well done and just really fascinating. And I, I, I find myself captivated by the stories. So I encourage everyone to listen. And their Thank production you. values are top notch. They oh, really thank are. You so much. We're, we're still working on that. Yeah, we, self-produced. We, we're trying. We've learned a lot of hard lessons. Well, <laughs> got any you can share with us? <laughs> Definitely. All right. So, are there any other side projects or passion projects you're working on right now? You want to shout out to our listeners before we let you go? Not now, but there are some things on the horizon. So, look out for our announcements from me. Follow me on Twitter to hear more. So, Camille, we've been ending our discussions by asking our guests, what book is on your nightstand right now? What are you reading so, these days in technology, law, and policy or otherwise? So, I'm reading for pleasure mostly because the days are so long. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, and, right and now, it's dark now, like early. Yes, yeah, so exactly. Kind of depressing. <laughs> and work has been so crazy that I, like, I completely need to, you know empty my mind at the end of the yeah. day. So I've been reading I'm Judging You by Lovey. Oh my God, I need to read that. I, I follow her blog. She's amazing. Yeah, I'm late to the game and I've had the book for a year, but I finally have fixed myself to read it. And then I'll also- i to borrow it when you're done. Yes, you can have <laughs> it. And also sitting on my um, on my nightstand is the Talon Manual 2.0. I've started it, but it's so large and I'm a terrible- <laughs> Internationally po- international policy person because I have not finished it yet, but it is coming. Awesome. Well, I'm reading. Um, so I'm uh, I'm actually I am reading some like you know law and policy nerdy stuff. It's you know those nutshell series. I'm reading the privacy in a nutshell because I am really interested in privacy. I'm actually kind of tr- trying to pivot towards that uh, arena. So um, yeah, what are you guys reading, Joe? Are, and are, those, well, are those books approachable? I've been I've I need. There's a couple nutshells I've been trying to or at least they're on my Amazon wish list somewhere. I think so. I think they're they're pretty technical, but it's like a really good overview. So I'd recommend them. Awesome. Well, so I guess I can say um, uh, Jesse Blumenthal, who works at the Charles Koch Institute, corralled me into speaking on a, a conference about ec- economics and privacy. Um, so my nightstand is covered with, well, I guess not books, but long essays on the economics of privacy. So articles by Alessandro Acquisti and a bunch of other FTC economists. I'm not sure it's pleasure reading, but it definitely (laughs) helps me get to sleep at night. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not reading anything differently from uh, last week, so I'm still working through. You're uh, celebrating uh, passing the bar, so you don't Yeah, yeah. What what I'm doing is I'm reading and rereading and rereading and rereading the uh, bar passage results. There you go. (laughs) As you should. As you should. Okay. So before we close out the show, we've got some upcoming events and job announcements to make. Well, so first, uh, we thought it was important to highlight that the Internet Education Foundation, which is pretty involved with the Foundry, is gearing up for the 14th annual State of the Net Conference. Um, It's held in Washington, D.C. on January 29th of the new year, 2018. Tickets are available now. 
Um, there's always a host of really interesting content and speakers, um, including Jerry Berman, who's the founder of my organization, the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, as well as other folks from Politico, Facebook, Bloomberg, um, all sorts of other movers and shakers in the tech policy world. Uh, so if you have the chance and you're in D.C. or are able to travel in wintertime, um, uh, I highly recommend it. It's a great conference. Um, finally, uh, you know, there's no shortage of new technology and jobs, both in law and tech policy at the moment. But I wanted to make a special plug for a new opening at the Center for Democracy and Technology. So, yes, someone out there can come work with me um, or rather adjacent to me. Our, uh, our free expression project is looking for a junior level policy analyst or counsel uh, to work on things like First Amendment issues, uh, CDA 230, Forever and Ever, which we covered in our first episode, um, as well as international human rights and free expression and content moderation. Uh, the project does some really great stuff, more recently from things on political advertisements to hate speech. Um, the project just finished up an awesome report on automated content analysis tools um, that will be coming out in early December, and that paper is going to be presented at the All Things in Moderation Conference um, in at UCLA, as well as at the Conference on Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency, uh, the <laughs> FAT Conference. Nice. Uh, yeah. Oh, every time we say that out loud, people are like, FAT Conference. <laughs> um, in any event, uh, on. in any event. And Kylie encourage everybody to apply for that job. I'd love to have a new coworker. Is that at the DC office or? Yes, you will have to be in DC. And we have positions wow. posted for everywhere from New York to DC to London and Paris this week on the job board. You can check out all those opportunities and more at ilpfoundry.us slash jobs. Camille, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's always fun to have our colleagues on to talk about what they're working on. And obviously encryption, you know, we'll, we'll be hearing a lot more about that debate in the future. It is my pleasure. And yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to hit us up on Twitter for questions, comments, or just to generally Twitter stalk us, you can reach me, Penal, at, at Woman of Fuego. I'm Joe. I'm available at Joe Jerome, but uh, I think I'm going to be taking a holiday Twitter cleanse, so I probably won't be on there for a while. <laughs> Uh, you can find me at Emery Roan, and I will not be taking a Twitter cleanse. In fact, Twitter is going to be my cleanse from the holidays. Nice. And you can reach me, Camille, at Camille ESQ. And we belatedly wanted to thank Ali Sternberg, who joined us in our first episode for providing music for the show. Um, and next episode, we'll have on Christian Stout, another one of our fellow fellows at the ILP, who will talk about data breaches and PII, another super hot topic. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Give us five stars. Take the time to go and write a review and maybe share it with your friends, especially for early podcasts. You know, we don't have any marketing budget at all. So the only way that our show gets spread is through the words of our listeners like you. So tell your friends, rate and review us, tell us on Twitter, and we will hear from you next time. Thanks for listening. 